Like I mentioned this morning, we are considering a brief passage in Jesus' favorite, or famous, I should say, my favorite, Sermon on the Mount. And in many ways, Jesus, the passage we're considering, he is concluding this famous discourse where he was on top of a mountain with his disciples, and he is more or less landing the plane of his sermon, concluding thoughts. And what Jesus has in mind is the idea of persistence. How do we persist living in a kingdom in which Jesus is that king? I'm sure we all know a few things about persistence and the ebbing and flowing of motivation. At one moment, we are planning a new workout routine, researching the ketogenic diet. January 1st comes and we are all motivated for new changes. But next thing we know, a few weeks later, the busyness of life, the old habits come back and we find ourselves in the same exact place that we started. Sometimes we might even be in crisis in our life. Maybe there is a relational conflict or maybe there is things at work and and maybe big problems have happened. Maybe you've embarrassed yourself or or really sinned and trespassed in some way and and you vow to yourself and you vow to others, I'm going to change and you buy the books and you sign up for the counseling and maybe it's good for a little bit. But at some point, we're kind of like the Energizer Bunny, right? We kind of start slowing down in our, in our motivation, in our persistence. Some 43% of people will end their New Year's resolutions within the first week. <laughs> and the average resolution lasts about three to four months. So with all that to said, people in this room, half of us have already given up on any resolution that we began just a few weeks prior. And like I said, Jesus wants his disciples, though, to persevere, to persist. Is the Christian life a lot like our resolutions, just a flash of a pan type of excitement? When we first come to Jesus, we're excited. We love the moral teachings of Christ. We love the, the, the theme of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, and we're all in on Jesus, but to just somewhere to start slowly and inevitably sputter out. How do we continue to persist in, in a kingdom in which it is so countercultural, it seems impossible to actually do? In fact, let me just briefly go over the context of Jesus' famous sermon here. Starting in chapter 5, Jesus, again, this whole sermon is really his manifesto of sorts. Of, of what does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be someone who lives in the kingdom in which Jesus is the king? And so in chapter 5, Jesus begins with these, these beatitudes, these blessings. And he says, first and foremost, the way you enter into this kingdom is you recognize that, that you don't come into God's kingdom having earned anything. You don't become a Christian having everything figured out. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Jesus is in essence saying that the first thing you need to know about coming into my kingdom is that it requires humility. That the whole kingdom is yours as long as you admit that you bring nothing. 
He talks about those who have an appetite for, for righteousness, the, the meek will inherit the earth. He goes on to say that, that his disciples are to be salt and light. We are to be the moral preservatives. We are to push back darkness. We are the type of people who recognize that anger and, and having anger in our hearts makes us liable to God's judgment. That to even look at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery. That those in Jesus' kingdom are, are those that keep their word. They keep their word in their marriage covenants, and they keep their word when they make promises and oaths. They don't retaliate. In fact, they love their enemies and turn the other cheek. They don't practice their righteousness to be seen by men, but they go to their closet and they pray to a heavenly father that they would give them everything they need to live in this kingdom and not to live for their own kingdom. We are to be people who store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, trusting that God will provide everything as long as we seek first his kingdom and righteousness. In chapter 7, Jesus says that you should not be so concerned about other people's sin. Don't notice the two-by-four you know, in your own eye, but, but you notice the speck in their eye. And in fact, the, 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 the level of judgment you use against others is the level that will be used against you. And again, this is just a very cursory uh, observation, overview of Jesus' sermon. And, and even just saying all of that, I think that if we're listening and reading the sermon correctly, we come to this consensus of who is sufficient to live this type of life. Who here honestly can say that they live this radical, countercultural, upside down, inside out type of righteousness in a consistent and exemplary way? And so, what do we do when we're tempted in our Christian life to stall out? Or maybe you're someone here this morning, you're just kind of maybe in the doldrums of life and life is hard and prayer seems hard and I don't read my Bible enough and I, I don't really want to even be here right now at church and my, my walk with God isn't that great and, and we have this temptation to be a little bit like what Jesus says in the parable of the sower. That there is the seed that went in the rocky soil and it sprung up really quickly and kind of the flash in the pan and when the sun came, when trials came, it withered away. So how, how do me and you persist in living in this kingdom? How do we actually follow Christ in a faithful way? How do you have a gospel-centered marriage? How do you avoid the temptation of being dishonest in your taxes? Here's how. Look at your Bible. Verse 7. Ask. Why? Because it will be given to you. Seek. Because you will find. Knock. Because it will be opened. You see Jesus here without saying it. Is I, he's, he's isn't saying, I understand that everything I've said so far in this sermon 
seems crushing. Again, who is sufficient for these things? No one is. That's the point. We need to depend on God. And so what Jesus is talking about here in these few five verses is praying. That the, the kingdom-centered life, the person who persists in living this life in which they want to honor Christ as king, you know, we can sing it, right? He is exalted. The king is exalted. Do we live it? How do we live it? Jesus says it is through prayer. Now, I confess I need to be, uh, I need to apologize. Kurt, I left the clicker down there, right? Uh, the one time I tell him I'm going to do it, and I fail completely, so I apologize. But really, here's the idea. He, he had it, right? That in order to persist in the kingdom of God, we must prayerfully depend on God's grace. We must prayerfully depend on God's grace. And so in many ways, this is a sermon about how prayer is the God-intended means, one of the God-intended means, to help us not be like the energizer bunny who just runs out of steam and energy, but to faithfully persist. And, and, and so the, the outline of my sermon this morning is, is very simple. Two points. I know it's a miracle for me. It's not a three-point sermon. Just two points. And I'd like to consider, how does prayer help us persist in God's kingdom? And you see the first point there up on the screen is that first, prayer recognizes our need for grace. Prayer recognizes our need for grace. Now, if you look at verse 7, you see this beautiful symmetry of, of these triads of commands. Ask, seek, knock. And it's followed up in verse 8 with these promises, right? For the person who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it'll be opened. You see, but Jesus here is, is trying to tip us into just the very nature of prayer itself. Prayer, by its very definition, is someone who recognizes that they can't do something on their own. Right? If I could figure out and, and live the Christian life out of my own moral strength and out of my own resolve, my wife would tell you that I'm the most optimistic person in the world. I cannot tell you how many times I've set my alarm clock to 5 a.m. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to run three miles. And it's been like that for 13 years, and it hasn't happened yet. So, so my moral resolve in and of myself, and maybe yours is greater than mine, isn't that good. But when you come to prayer and you ask, what are you naturally saying? That, oh, Lord, by my own strength, I am able to do this. You see, this is why James, James is thinking a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, the book of James. He says, you do not have, why? Because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the, the, one of the reasons why Christians are praying people is because they recognize that apart from God's grace and helping us live this Christian life, we are doomed. And so the question that naturally should run through our mind is when we are in a season of prayerlessness is this. 
do we think that we can start the Christian life in humility? That again, if you go back to really quick to chapter five, verse three, the whole sermon, the whole Christian life begins really on this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. If we understand that the Christian life begins with my need, that I am a sinner, that I need grace, that apart from the work of Christ on my behalf, I am an object of God's wrath. If, if I can recognize this is how I begin the Christian life, why do we somehow think that we can continue in the Christian life in our own power? You know, the Western world doesn't have much room for prayer. We like our hustle and bustle. If we have a problem, we go to YouTube. We're busy. We have a lot of things going on. Even if you think about us as a church corporately, what is the corporate prayer life of our church? There's this danger that we can somehow think that our evangelism, our discipleship, our own personal sanctification, the betterment of our marriages, the raising of our children can come by our own willpower and strength. And so maybe just a little litmus test for you, a little litmus test to determine how much you are actually operating in your own power or operating with the grace that God gives is how much do you pray about the issues in your life? If you have relational issues, do you ask God for wisdom? How many of us pray for our church? I think, you know, any good member of this church, we desire to see the ministry grow. We want to see lives changed. We want to see people come to know the Lord Jesus and to put their faith in him. Do we pray like that, though? No one is capable by himself of even approaching the quality of life characterized in Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. No one by their sheer self-determination can improve himself or herself and make themselves presentable to God. This is why ultimately we must pray. We must ask. To those who are poor in spirit are those who are eager to ask God for his grace. That we are eager to receive God's salvation now and the full riches of our salvation as we depend on him. And so this is why, friends, when Carl asked me to preach, you know, as we would say in seminary, always be ready to preach, pray, or die. Um, the first thought I had was, was this passage. Because what a beautiful promise this is. I mean, maybe one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. Ask, because it'll be given. God has not left us to fend to ourselves. He will give us everything we need. And so prayer ultimately helps us to see our need, right? And maybe this is the hardest part of communicating the gospel in the modern world that we have, of communicating to people and trying to, to compel them to understand that the Bible tells you 
that you are in a desperate need, that on your own you are helpless and doomed. But as long as you can admit that, here's the great news. You will receive all of God's grace and mercy. More than just helping us see our need, though, this passage also gives us a little clue as, as to how we can actually persevere. Uh, many people have commented on the actual imperatives here and to kind of get into the Greek. It's in the present tense. And so the idea here is not just simply ask once or seek once or knock once. It's, it's asking, knocking, seeking it's this idea of, of we don't just hunger and thirst for righteousness once. We are hungering for righteousness. We are thirsting for righteousness. It is, it is in every single day I am coming to the Lord and I am asking him. I am seeking him. I am knocking. Lord, help me to live this Christian life. I was encouraged with a conversation I had with a friend just a few days ago of, of how important it is to every single day ask ourselves the question of Lord, how do I walk in faith today? What does it look like in the situation that you have placed me in today to trust you? You see, when you start asking that question every day, when, you, when you're coming before the Lord and you're mindful of your circumstances, you're mindful of, of everything that's happening in your life, and you are insistent on living a life and that's pleasing to the Lord, here's what you begin to do. You ask him. You seek him. You knock. And so again, we have to appreciate James, the brother of our Lord. In James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And here's the promise again. And it will be given. And it will be given. And so at this point, I need to maybe just say pastorally, I understand that when we talk about prayer, it can easily conjure up feelings of guilt, shame, inadequacies. How many of us can honestly, really, truly say, yeah, I pray enough. I feel my whole Christian life up to this point has been this constant feelings of, I should pray more. John Piper has a very helpful little one-liner, and he says, you know, social media will be, you know, the one thing that our generation um, will have used against us when we go up to heaven and say we didn't have time to pray. Like, friends, we, we have much more time. And, and I know even hearing things like that can make us feel even more guilty. And, and maybe you kind of, at this point in the sermon, are starting to feel like, all oh, right, Pastor Aaron, you're right. I should pray more. I'm going to you know, go home and I'm going to make this list of prayer journals and I'm going to create this new plan and I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to pray like Daniel did. And we can kind of just fall right back into that new resolution type of mentality. Right, for maybe the next week, Hope Community Church prays a lot more, but that self-determination begins to fall off. So can I just maybe give you a few practical um, things from my own life of how to incorporate more prayer into your life? Um, to, to those of you who wake up at 5 a.m. and pray, God bless you, I want to be like you, love you, mean it. 
I, I hope, I aspire to be like you. I think for a lot of us, though, we would benefit from just trying to pray shorter times throughout our day. I think it's important. This is why the, the, the Christian church is so important to have relationships. So when you meet with another believer, pray before you start and pray after. Pray before your meal and after your meal. Pray in the morning time. Pray at lunchtime. Pray at dinner time. Pray everywhere you can. Maybe you start small. That if you have a 10-minute commute to work, you say, I'm going to pray for five minutes and listen to my podcast for the rest of the time. Find ways to be creative, to incorporate more prayer. But ultimately, here's my biggest suggestion. Ask God to give you a diligence to come to him, to pray. This is, in essence, what Jesus is saying. What, what do you do when you feel like you don't want to pray? Ask God. Seek him. Knock. God is in the business of helping his covenant children be faithful. And so may we aspire to be individuals who pray. May we as married couples pray together. May we pray as families over our children. May we pray as a church, amen? But more than this, prayer helps us to persist in the kingdom, not simply by helping us recognize our own neediness, but secondly, it helps us by, as we'll see up on the screen, by helping us to remember who we're praying to. And, and so much of this really stems back to the fact of our, our lack of perspective when, we're, when, when we cease praying. If I could tell you right now that after church, I'm gonna give you a phone and I'll dial anyone in the world you want and I, I guarantee they're gonna pick up. Who would you wanna talk to? Some politician, tell Brock Purdy to do good today. Maybe you're a Swifty. But if you really think about that for a second, maybe you're excited to talk to someone who's rich and famous. It, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that we often forget that as God's covenant children, when we pray to God, he hears us. That he delights in hearing the praises of his children. That when Jesus says here that we have a good father, I think we need to remember the privilege it is to actually be speaking to God. And so Jesus here, he kind of gives the promise, like I said, in verse 8, but then he gives us this wonderful illustration, which we see in some of the other synoptic gospels, and he says in verse 9, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Right? Apparently there was some fish in the Galilean Sea that kind of looked like a serpent, and that's kind of why Jesus is mentioning that. But then he says here in verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, sometimes as, as Christians, we're well-intended and we're well-meaning, and we, we kind of make this statement that God is the Father of everyone, and that we're all just brothers and sisters in the world. 
But, but I need to say that biblically speaking, there is no such concept of a universal understanding that God is the Father to everyone. In fact, Jesus would look at his opponents and say, you are fathers of the devil. And so when Jesus here is talking about us having a heavenly father, we need to understand he's talking about those who have actually come into and been adopted into God's family and now can call God as father. Now, now certainly I would say every single human being is equally made in the image of God and we have worth and dignity, but when it refers to God being our father, it is uniquely reserved for those who have actually gone through the right things to become a member of God's household. And so I, I need to say very clearly here this morning that if you're someone who is not a Christian, or maybe you're unsure about what the gospel is, this passage is not teaching in any way, shape, or form that God is this cosmic genie in the sky, and apparently if you ask him anything, he will give it to you. And because he's my father, he delights in giving me good things. Now, this is why, pastorally, if I can just help anyone in my church learn how to read the Bible, it's to learn how to read it in context. That this passage is not so much trying to say that any single person who prays to God because he's their father will get whatever they want. And so I think that the first question we must answer to interpret this passage correctly is, is how does someone become a child of God? And so if we were to look in John 1, Jesus says, that those who received Christ, he gave the authority or he gave the power to become sons of God. That the way to have God as your father is to recognize first that you don't deserve for God to be your father. You don't deserve to have a relationship. In fact, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is really about. That we are people who are poor in spirit, who are needy of God's grace that we have sinned, that we have incurred a debt, that because of our sin, we will pay a price for our sin. And that, and that, and that payment is eternal death. That to not know God as Father is to only know him as a judge. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, he came to this world he lived a life in which he fulfilled all righteousness. He never once sinned. He was the true son of God, obeying every command of his father. And he went to the cross. And on that cross, he died as a substitute for our sins. And it's for those who put their faith in Christ, who recognize that they have a need to be forgiven, a need for their sin to be removed that they receive eternal life. They receive, as what Paul would say in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit, and they can now call upon God as Abba Father. And so for those who are Christians, when we call upon God the Father, we need to recognize how incredible that privilege is. When we remember what we deserved, sin and death and judgment, but what we've been given in Jesus Christ, and now we can call upon God as our heavenly Father, 
think this passage helps us to remember that we can persist because we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who sees us, who notices us, who, who is working all things for our good. So let's remember that when we pray. And this morning, if you're not a Christian, I, I pray that you would go to him and ask him to forgive you. You would believe that what Jesus has done for you is enough and that you can also become one of God's children. And so this leads us maybe with the most penetrating interpretive question of the passage. Not only do we remember that God is our Heavenly Father, but we remember that he has good gifts. God is not in the business of giving out evil to those who belong to him. And it's very fascinating, this kind of throwaway sentence Jesus says, if all of you who are evil, what an indictment on the human race, right? Not me, all of you who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? And so here's my basic question to you. Does God want to give his people good gifts? Yes. The question we must answer is, what is a good gift? Right? We could easily become one of those churches, right? Those kind of prosperity, health and wealth, prosperity preachers where I can say, I'm a father. I like giving good gifts to my children. Who wouldn't want to give their son or daughter a brand new car on their 16th birthday? If my child was sick and I could do something for them, who wouldn't want to do that? Well, I like having nice things. My kids like having nice things. And we can easily construe this idea of good gifts into being temporal, money, success, fame, clothes, trips. But is that what Jesus means? I mean, because really, we could take this passage and run with it in a lot of bad directions, right? We can just make this to be a carte blanche passage about, hey, you know, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. You know, name it and claim it. Ask God and he will give it to you. He gives good things. But contextually, we have to remember, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus, again, he's going through this sermon and he's talking about all the ways in which it looks like to be his follower. Someone who is concerned about having a poverty of spirit, a purity of heart, someone who has compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity. And the thing is, is that we lack all of these things. And so the good things that God wants to give you, you ready for it? Here it is. The good things that God wants to give you is the grace and the faith to actually live a life in which we resemble his son, Jesus Christ. The greatest gift that God has given us and he has given us in the full is his son, the Lord Jesus. The greatest gift that God can give his covenant children is to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so there are times where I can read this passage as a high schooler and I can ask God and I can seek him and I can knock and maybe there's some real problems in my life, some real trials and I'm praying and I'm praying and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And I say, Lord, it says right here that you will give. I'm knocking, 
Why is it an opening? And it's because God knows more than we do. Because he actually knows what a good gift is. And so this is why you see the apostles, you see the early church fathers, you see the reformers, talk about trials, tribulations. They talk about suffering as being friends. Doesn't that seem kind of masochistic in a way? Talk about suffering as being a friend? But here's why. Because God only gives good things. And therefore, if he brings us into a season of suffering, we must know that it is because it is his desire to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus. This is why in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he says something very similar. It's kind of the exact same passage, but a little bit more detail. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so is not the Holy Spirit the best gift of all, a gift that comes down from above that actually helps us to persist and to persevere in living a life in which we give full glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And so there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God knows what is good for us. And we must assume that if God does not answer our prayer in the way that we hoped and the way we expected, it's because God knows what he's doing. And so friends, prayer is the way that God has intended for us to learn how to depend on him. Prayer, as it were, is verbal dependency. And so what do you do this week when you're in a situation and you find yourself very angry and annoyed? What do you do when you're tired at the end of the day raising your kids and they're getting on your nerves? What do you do when you feel the guilt and the shame for the sin that you said you wouldn't do? What do you do when you feel like you're in the throes of depression? Or in the, the lows of grief? What do you do when you just feel like you're in stuck and neutral and the whole Christian life seems jumbled in your minds? Here's what you should do. Very simple. Ask. Because it will be given to you. Seek. Because you will find. And knock. And the next day, here's what you do. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking as those who are characterized by being poor in spirit, we every single day depend and rely upon the grace that God will give us to do one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. And so friends, may we endeavor to be these type of people 
who in the world says, solve your own problems, read a book. Sometimes the most effective and profitable thing we can do for our soul is to stop and pray. Let's do it now. Father, we ask for your grace, Lord, that you would help us to be these people who depend on you. Lord, help us to know that you care so much about us, that you are our gracious, heavenly Father. You only give good gifts. And Lord, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for our hearts individually. God, I pray for our, our ministry together as a church that we would avoid the pride and the, and the folly of thinking that we can solve our own problems, that we can just persevere and persist in this kingdom life by doing it in our own way. Lord, may we repent of such thinking. May we be people who frequently persistently, habitually come before your throne of grace asking for help, knowing that those who seek wisdom, you give it generously. Thank you, Lord, for being the God that you are. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.